0: A quick survey of the land of the church would tend to reveal that we are doing all we can to make God down to our level. It's refreshing to go back to God's Word and see Him high and exalted as we'll do next. Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Hello. Welcome to our program. Our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse will begin a brand new series today. It's simply entitled, No One Like God. And that's what we'll be looking at, the fact that God is altogether different. Even though most of us would try and humanize God to make Him accessible and less threatening, the Bible has something very different to say about our God, quite refreshing, actually. Join us, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 35. Here's Pastor Steve Converse now, as we get today's broadcast of Graceful Truth underway.
1: If We turn our our hearts to God's Word. I just want to read our text for us this morning out of Romans chapter 11. We've been in Romans for several weeks now. Romans chapter 11 for several weeks, excuse me. Romans for several years, I guess, but anyway. Uh, I want to look at verse 33 today. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This text of Scripture all the way down to verse 36, as you continue to read there, it says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Well, as we begin in verse 33, I kind of want to begin on the next series here is no one like God. No one like God. No one even comes close. And today we want to talk about the perfect knowledge of God in Romans 33. You see there where Paul points out very clearly that he wants us To see the wisdom, the knowledge, the judgments, his ways. And so we want to start off today with the knowledge of God. This really deals with the greatness of God. The greatness of God. It has to do with his wisdom. It has to do with his omniscience. And so the question is asked, who knows the mind of God and who is the person that gives God advice? That's what Paul wants to know. The answer very clearly is no one. No one. God's mind can be pondered and and maybe a little bit understood as we read the scriptures, as the scriptures reveal him to us. But we can never know completely the mind of God because it transcends our ability as humans. He is a God that we can never fully understand him or his ways. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. gods is just in a whole other universe, beloved. Isaiah is saying God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. I mean, we think we get it all figured out, right? You know, when we go to God and pray, we're going to pray, pray God, you do this. This is what you have to do, God. You know, we find ourselves almost telling him what he needs to do in our lives. And God's, nah, I don't think so. Matter of fact, I'm going to do just the opposite. <laughs> and, and he does. And it's all for his glory and our good. And see, when you stop and you think of the idea that no one is like God, no one. And then you stop and think about the fact that, you know what? We can know him personally through the gift of salvation, through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I mean, it is really an incredible thing. You know, we have to remember that we are not his counselor, we are not his counselor. And so we see here in this one verse, the perfect knowledge of God, the profound wisdom of God, the unsearchable knowledge or the unsearchable judgments of God and the amazing ways of God. Each one of those is just because of shorter time with communion, we're just going to deal with knowledge today. But even that is difficult. The perfect knowledge of God. Do you know that God does what he pleases when he pleases? And we're just called to praise him for what he does when he does it? I mean, that would be a good lesson for us to start off. As we go through life, you just need to stop trying to figure out God. Stop trying to figure out why everything does it this way or simply starts this way or whatever it is. And just learn to trust God by faith. Because you know what? Last time I checked, he knows exactly what he's doing. And the last time I checked, we don't really have a good grasp of what we're doing most of the time. (laughs) You know, we struggle in that area. Do you know that God sees the future? He knows what's best now and then for us. We don't. How many of you can see the future? How many of you know what your week's going to be like next week? I mean, you may have your little schedule, your little schedule on your iPhone and, you know, all this. You don't know what's going to happen. You have the slightest idea. So we need to bow before him and his glory and exalt his worthy name. And that is where Paul is leading here in this chapter, at the end of the chapter. I mean, do you ever stop and think about that? Who are you worshiping? You come faithfully to church every week, maybe Sunday night, maybe Wednesday night. Who are you worshiping? Most people, if they were to be honest, they would probably conclude they're worshiping a God like themselves, a God that they've created in their own image, a God that they feel comfortable with. See, I'm here to tell you this morning, beloved, that God is not like us, but we like to think of him as if he were, because, you know, we can handle that kind of a God, a God who's brought low like us. We can even dismiss him at times as irrelevant, which we all do, by the way, with the priority in our own lives. The Bible tells us that God rebukes that kind of thinking. God says, to those who treat sin lightly, in Psalm fifty twenty one, he says, you thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face, God says. See, don't grow too comfortable. God also says, we read in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. And yet we're constantly, we have this urge to reduce God to our level. It doesn't make any difference how smart you are or how long you've been a Christian. We all kind of fall to that at times. And nobody is above that. So this is just what we do. But I'm here to say that no one is like our God. The very fact that God is not like us, when you stop and think about it, that's part of the problem. We can't relate to him. We looked at these attributes last week. The three, the incommunicable attributes of God, self-existence, self-sufficiency, eternality, they belong to God and God alone. We can only make feeble attempts as we try to understand what they mean. Sometimes we say things like, well, God has no origins, God depends on no one, God had no beginning and will have no end. But what does that mean? Well, there's also God's communicable attributes that he can share with us. They're beyond our full understanding, but we can possess them to a lesser degree the Bible says. And some of these qualities are found here in this ending of chapter 11 by Paul. And this is what he points out. He points out there the knowledge, the wisdom, the judgments, the ways of God. So let's look today at the knowledge of God, the perfect knowledge of God, the unique quality of knowledge possessed by God in its perfection. The idea that God is omniscient, the idea that God knows all things and he knows them exhaustively. I mean, we also know some things. But even our knowledge of some of those things, even if you've put your whole life work into studying on a certain job plane and a certain interest, engineering or medicine, your knowledge is just partial. Your knowledge is imperfect. Well, how can we describe God's knowledge? A.W. Pink wrote this. I think it's up there on the screen for you. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, of the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven and earth and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs. He never changes. He never overlooks anything. He also said this, God has never learned from anyone Now, there's some people that they don't learn from anyone either, but that's not a good trait to have, let me tell you. We should always be teachable, but God doesn't need to be teachable because he doesn't need to be taught because there's nothing that's not within the mind of God. A.W. Tozer goes on, he says, "'God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from all eternity? He would be imperfect and less than himself.'" To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an ark, or seraph, is to think of someone other than the most high God, maker of heaven and earth. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. All mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities. All law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every uttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he goes on, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised. He's never amazed. He never wanders about anything, wonders about anything, nor, except when drawing men out for their own good, does he seek information or ask questions. That's the knowledge of God. See, when we reflect on God in that way, we begin to understand why Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was no slack himself. I mean, he had a pretty good mind about himself. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God. He's admitting that God's knowledge is so much greater and superior than ours, that all we can do is just stand in awe of it. See, the perfection of God's knowledge, it's awesome, but it's also disturbing. See, that's why we don't try to think too hard about God and things like his knowledge. See, if we just think of God about knowing things or other people or the idea that his knowledge is only awesome. It's amusing, almost like a reaction to the response of a a bunch of children at school who were asked whether they thought God understood computers. They asked him that. The majority of the kids said, well, no, how could he? How could he understand? He wasn't, you know, that was their thinking. Does God understand computers? Oh, yes. Every little part of that computer It creates havoc in your life at times. God knows exactly what's wrong with it. Although we know that when we think about God, when we think about it, we consider all that God knows about us. Stop and think about that. What God knows about you. What God knows about me. I mean, we don't mind an ignorant God. Someone who doesn't know that. Or or a God who forgets. That's kind of fine. But what are we going to do with a God, the Bible says, before whom all hearts are open, all desires known. I mean, that's kind of threatening. I'm reminded as a youth pastor, and even I see my daughter and and son-in-law doing this with their kids once in a while. They'll say, you know, I'm going to ask you a question. A kid get in trouble in the youth group. I'd bring him in the office. Hey, I'm going to ask you some questions about what happened on the retreat or whatever they got in trouble for. And I said, I just want you to know the questions I'm asking you, I already know the answers to. I'm just letting you know right up front. I already know the answers. And then I would ask the questions. And, you know, a lot of times when you think of God already knows the answers. He already knows everything about us. God's knowledge about believers is complete, about everybody it's complete. Well, let's look at just four things here quickly about the perfect knowledge of God. When we think of, of God's perfect knowledge, when we think of a God who, who is so vast, so far superior to us, What should that do? Well, first of all, it should humble us. It should humble us. I think here of of Job in the Old Testament. I mean, stop and think. God allowed Satan to attack righteous Job to demonstrate that a believer is able to love God solely for who he is and not merely for the blessings. We sang the song this morning. He gives and takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan attacks Job. Well, what does he do to Job? You know the story. He took away his possessions. Killed his children. Wait a minute. He killed his children. He killed his children. He eventually attacked his health. I mean, Job was basically reduced to total misery in life. And I don't think it was a mistake that God left his wife. Curse God and die were, hers, were her words. I mean, what a wonderful lady she must have been. But see, even in the most wretched state of his being, he didn't blame God. The, the Bible tells us that. See, a lot of people, well, I don't want to go to Job. I don't want to look. Why? It shows the grandeur of the God that we serve. That the Lord gave and the Lord takes away, that the Lord is in complete control. See, that was his amazing testimony in Job 121. And you remember the story at this point, Job's friends began to come along. And basically the rest of the book is a bunch of their speeches as they come along and judge and his answers back to them. I mean, they basically argued the fact that God is a moral God and that this is a moral universe and that bad things do not happen without good reason. So what's the problem here, Job? What did you do wrong? Job must have sinned in some way. He must have brought these troubles on himself. Now, Job did not consider himself to be innocent of all sin, of course, but he knew that he had done nothing to deserve what was happening to him. He was right. What he did not know was that his suffering was the focal point of an invisible but very important spiritual cosmic struggle. All this time, for 37 chapters, God was silent. You ever been in that time in your life where you're just going through it? Trials, tribulations, and you're not hearing nothing. You're reading the Bible, you're trying to read it, and it says nothing. Nothing there. What do you expect God to say? We expect God to explain things to Job, or at least offer him some comfort. I mean, he's been through a lot, this poor guy, right? We expect God to tell him about Satan's accusations and and reveal how how that, that, that Job had been singled out because of his righteousness, And Job, I know that you're going to continue to trust even though Satan's attacking you. You know, this is all arranged by me, and and, and this is part of the deal. Hang in there, Job. But that's not what you find in the book of Job. Instead, we find God rebuking Job for presuming to think that he could understand God's ways, even if they were explained to him. What is Job saying? Job is basically pointing out, the book of Job is pointing out the majestic knowledge of God. That should humble us in his presence. That should help us to understand that, you know what, all those things, all those questions, there's many in the book of Job. The answer is God. Who does this God? Who does that God? I mean, we're going to be embarrassed to think that we'll ever suppose that we could contend with God intellectually. We can't. We should appreciate the perfect knowledge of God. It should humble us. Secondly, it should, what, comfort us. It should comfort us. We should not only get humility from the knowledge of God, his great, great and mighty knowledge, but we also find that it should bring us comfort. Well, why? Because God knows us. Have you ever been lost, maybe as a little kid, shopping mall or amusement park? You don't know anybody? What does that strike in your heart? Fear. Most children are terrified when they lose their mom or dad or their family or their group. And you can see the, the joy even in tears when they're reunited. Why? Because they know them. In a vast sea of unknown faces, all of a sudden they spot mom. Wow. Why? Because mom knows that daughter or that son. God knows the worst about us. And you know what? He loves us anyway. Doesn't that bring you comfort? He also knows the best about us, even when other people don't. Maybe blame us for things that are not our fault. God knows. We don't need to be so hurried to run to the defense of ourselves all the time. Job expressed comfort in Job 23.10 in God's knowledge of him. He says, he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Job 23.10. Remember Hagar, Abraham's concubine who gave birth to Ishmael. Early in the the story, Hagar was so badly mistreated by Sarah, Abraham's wife, that the story says she decided to run away. God appeared to her to say that he knew what was going on in her life, that he knew what was suffering. But you know what? That she would return to Sarah and submit to her. And as a result of that revelation, Hagar gave a new name to God, which is best translated, you are the God who sees me. Genesis sixteen thirteen. Do you know that God sees you no matter what, when no one else does? See, it was a comfort to Hagar to know that God saw her, that God knew about the suffering that she was going through. There's an illustration of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The second year he was in London when he preached a sermon on the text in which he told the story of a visiting the cell of a man who had died while imprisoned. And so the cell, the story says, was down a long winding stair of a castle where light never penetrated, and it was only as large as the man himself. Sometimes they tortured him, the story says. Spurgeon writes, but his shrieks never reached through the thickness of the walls. It never ascended the winding staircase. Here he died, and there, sir, he was buried, pointing to a spot on the ground. Yet, said Spurgeon, there was no one who did see him and knew the extent of his suffering, There was someone who knew him, knew the extent of his suffering, and that was God. Thirdly, it should encourage us to live for God. One of the greatest psalms that that people love to read is Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Turn over there with me, if you will. Psalm 139. Just follow along as I read this for us. It speaks of of the incredible knowledge of God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your wa- works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Grieve this way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That psalm should be an encouragement to our heart that no matter where you go, no matter how hard you try to run away from God, he is there. He is there. Even when you don't feel it, even when you don't sense it, he is there. And then the last thing here, it should help us to pray. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when he encouraged his followers to pray To God confidently expecting answers, he said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, he said this, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they know, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask. Isn't that amazing? The fact that God knows our needs even before they come out of our mouth, even before they enter our mind. Isaiah sixty five twenty four says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. See, when you stop and you you think of God's knowledge, for believers it should do those four things. When you think of God's knowledge in unbelievers, it's a vastly different scenario. Hebrews chapter four, verse thirteen, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Trust me, beloved, every human heart, every human soul will one day stand before a righteous, holy, perfect God with complete knowledge. He will look at them, and they will have to give an account for everything. God sees you. All you have to do is look at the illustrations there, Cain, Achan, Ananias, and Sapphira. God sees what's going on. And sometimes he has to discipline or even punish, in the case of unbelievers, those who are not seeking his ways. I mean, when you stop and you think, how does God know all this? It's because his, his, his knowledge is complete. It's perfect. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would not wait for that day when you need to stand before him. You will stand before him. And you will give an account. Because the Lord Jesus Christ died so that sinners just like you and I are saved from that judgment. The way to escape God's judgment, beloved, is to go through the cross, to come to Christ, to come to the sacrifice that was made on your behalf, to believe on him, to trust him, to follow him, to yield your life to him, to repent, to turn from your sins, and follow the Savior. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and truly trust him and follow him, the Bible clearly says that you will, you will be saved.
0: If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650 366 9923 or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org we've got a lot of resource materials available there more information about who we are and if you need a map to visit us at grace bible church that's there as well again gracefultruth.org and would you please drop us an email let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by again gracefultruth.org and while you're at our website don't forget to download our mobile app new and improved and ready to use. Whether you're securely donating online or taking advantage of the podcasts on your mobile phone, simply go to iTunes or Google Play and look for Grace Bible Church, Redwood City, CA. Or stop by our website, gracefultruth.org and follow the prompts. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth.